Uh, yes, as, as Marjorie and I both noted uh, this, this week, we've come a year away from Medicare. So uh, congratulations, Marjorie. <laughs> okay. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Well, last week, we were given a glimpse of the city of God as John shared with us his vision of the new heaven and earth. And today, that city comes clearly into view. We pick up the account in Revelation 21, verses 9 through 11. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a, a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, the presenting angel of this vision is quite possibly the same angel who earlier carried John away in the spirit to a wilderness to view Babylon, the wicked city of earth. He now returns to carry John away to a great and high mountain to view the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the former city was characterized as a harlot, the consort of the beast. This city is pictured as a bride, the wife of the Lamb. The former city was a place of destruction, a place of ugliness, a place of demons, a place of death. This city is a place of eternal security a place of eternal beauty, a place of eternal worship, a place of eternal life. And for those of us who are in Christ, it is our eternal home. Now, as we noted last week, the holy city itself, the city of God, isn't the totality of the new heaven and earth. You know, once the earth has been purified and remade by fire, once it's been transformed by God into a place for eternal habitation, then the holy city, the bride of Christ, will descend from heaven. And the city will be, as if it were, the, the capital of the new earth, the place of God's eternal habitation among his people. But that's not to suggest the holy city is the palace where God lives and we live elsewhere. The holy city is also called the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is the church. The holy city is a picture of God dwelling with his people, not apart from them. Dwelling together in a restored paradise. But of course, all of this is simply an attempt to conceptualize something that's beyond our comprehension. So we've got to be careful not to think our eternal home will be limited by the images we've been presented. It's much grander than anything we can imagine. But yet John does picture our eternal home as a city. 
A city, again, that's not the totality of heaven, but is the, the central feature of it and does portray the major elements of life eternal, beginning with our eternal security. Verses 12 through 17. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the, those of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me, had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, the New American Standard translators have done us both a service and a disservice by putting the measurements of the city into figures with which we can readily identify. They say the city is laid out as a square 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. Now, we can visualize 1,500 miles. It's from here to Phoenix. If we square that and build a cube 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, we get some idea of the dimensions of the city visualized by John. Now, I'm not going to do the math here to figure the square footage again. I attempted to do that when speaking of the mansion awaiting Bill Kirkton. Well, Jonathan noted that I had called quadrillions Trillions. No. Trillions, quadrillions. I can't even get straight when I try, John. All right, let's back it up. Jonathan noted that what I had called quadrillions was actually trillions, right? Okay. But I don't think that really makes much difference today now that uh, we're told that a trillion is the new billion anyway. But uh, <clears throat> be that as it may, <laughs> be that as it may, we want to go on to the disservice, not the uh, advantage of visualizing it at 1,500 miles. The disservice done by translating it into miles is that we lose a very important aspect of John's measurement because he actually reported it in stadias, the length of a Roman stadium, 600-foot units. Now, we do have uh, a unit of measurement equal to the stadia today. It's a furlong, but not many of us can visualize a furlong. But the point John is making is that the city measured 12,000 stadia wide, long, and high. And the symbolism of 12,000, I think, is obvious, while there is no symbolism in 1500. Twelve, as we've already discovered, is a symbol for religion and worship. There were 12 tribes, 12 apostles. And there are 12 elders on 12 thrones surrounding the throne of God. 
1,000 simply magnifies the number, shows it to be complete or perfect. So a cube, 12,000 stadia on a side, pictures a city that is immense and perfectly designed as eternal habitation for God and his people. In addition to that, the cube itself is a symbol of solidity, stability, and permanence. So the picture we get is not only one of immensity and perfection, but one of stability and eternal security. That element of security is also highlighted by the details given concerning the walls. You know, the ancient uh, city, uh, their security was dependent upon its walls. And John sees the holy city as a city with eternally secure walls. The wall is great and high with 12 gates, three on a side, each guarded by an angel. Written on the 12 gates were names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and on the foundation stones, the names of the apostles. Now, the significance of that is open to conjecture, but most likely the mention of 12 tribes and 12 apostles together was intended to picture the church in its totality, made up of saints from both the old and the new covenants. And the foundation stones named after the twelve apostles no doubt indicate that the city is founded upon the apostolic message, making this an eternal city founded upon an eternal gospel. John then notes that the walls were measured and found to be, according to our translation, 72 yards. But again, we've lost the symbolism here because the actual measurement was 144,000 cubits. 144,000, of course, is a multiple of 12 and was therefore used more to symbolize the character of the walls than their dimension. But a question does arrive, uh, arise about the dimension because it's not clear whether we're being told that the wall was 144,000 cubits high or 144,000 cubits uh, thick. Now, I tend to believe that this is a reference to the thickness of the walls because a wall 144,000 cubits high wouldn't really appear to be a great and high wall if it surrounded a city 1,500 miles high, okay? But it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. The picture John wants us to see is a secure city, one that is perfectly built and eternally secure. The next picture is it's a place of eternal beauty, verses 18 through 21. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the eleventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophrase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. 
Now, there's no way we can really visualize the beauty of the city of God. This is literally a city out of this world. But John does try to picture it for us in symbols we can visualize or at least almost visualize. Now, there's no way to know for sure if we've properly identified the stones that John mentions. Because the best translators can do is come up with what they think to be the modern equivalent of the stones that the ancients described. And since we can't come up with any definite conclusions about the jewels mentioned, it's foolish to try to read special significance into each one of them. And some commentators try to do that. I think all we need to do is picture gigantic jewels of various colors and hues, and that should be enough. Well, the wall in John's vision was apparently a solid crystal wall set upon 12 foundation stones that were themselves separate, 12 separate jewels. And the jewels would make the Hope Diamond look like a, a speck or a grain of sand. I remember seeing the Hope Diamond in Washington with the kids years ago, and that was, wow. I can't imagine a jewel 500 feet long. But that's the foundation stones, the foundation stones of the city of God. And then on the foundation stones are pearls. Now, we speak of the pearly gates, and, I, and I've always visioned that as just kind of pearl overlay or, you know, bunches of pearls. But each gate was what? One pearl. Talk about a pearl of great price. One pearl with a gate bored through it. I can't even visualize that. I can't even visualize that. Then John says that the street and the walls of the city were pure gold. Now, you know, sad to say I, I don't wear my gold very often anymore. It doesn't fit on my fingers very well. But I try to wet it down and get them on for Sunday anyway. But we know what gold looks like. But he says this gold is, is like what? Transparent glass. What kind of gold is that? It's, it, it's beyond anything we can imagine. The only conclusion we can come to is that the city of God is a place of indescribable beauty. And a beauty that will never fade. A beauty that will last forever. And then we see that the city of God is a place of eternal worship. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of the Lord, the glory of God, has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, a feature about the city of God that may seem a little bit surprising is that there's no temple in the city of God. But then again, why 
should there be a temple in the city of God. God himself and the Lamb are there in person, and their glory fills the entire city. So there's no need for a temple. In fact, their glory so illumines the city, there's no need for sun or moon. Everyone there walks by the light of their presence. After all, isn't that what worship really is? Walking in the light of God. We, we sometimes reduce worship to singing, but that's only one little part of worship. Worship is walking, living life in the presence of Almighty God. You know, men go to temples to be inspired by what they perceive to be the presence of God. And that, that presence is what inspires and guides and directs their life. But if we're actually in the presence of God, and the only light present is divine light, our life will become an expression of pure worship. Worship. That's what it'll be like in heaven. Everyone will be in continual worship. Now, that does not mean we'll be bowing up and down for all eternity. Again, the highest form of worship is service. Living a life that brings honor and glory to the object of our devotion. And life in the city of God will be just that. It will be life lived in such a way that glory is constantly and continually being offered to God. And obviously those who would object to such a life won't be there. Those who refuse to honor their creator in this life will have already been excluded from the new heaven and earth. So only those who desire to bring honor and glory to their creator and redeemer will be there. Those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Now the mention of nations and kings of the earth here has caused considerable comment. Those who are more liberal in their understanding of Scripture have suggested that John simply got carried away with too many Jewish ideas here about life in the new earthly Jerusalem because Jews looked forward to a time when the nations would pay homage to them in their holy city. Others suggest this is a kind of flashback showing how the nations came into the church while it was on earth. The most straightforward explanation, I think, seems to be that life on the new earth will include nations and kings. That somehow, nations and kings will be utilized by God in the administration of the eternal kingdom. Now, don't ask me to elaborate, because I can't. I have no clue how that will work out. But perhaps... Perhaps the seats of honor that James and John sought and the crowns of reward mentioned in Scripture will figure into this somehow. But be that as it may, the point is that everyone in the city of God will walk by the light of the glory of God. And in doing so, will offer up eternal worship to the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The last thing we discover about the city of God is that it's a place of eternal life. Chapter 22, 1 through 5. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, 
coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and through the middle of the street in the city of God, is a river of the water of life. This river, in turn, waters rows of trees of life that line its banks throughout the city. These trees then produce fruit every month for the sustenance of life and leaves that keep the nations in peace. Now, that's the vision that John was given. And it's amazingly similar to one Ezekiel saw and recorded for us in the 47th chapter of his prophecy. But I think we violate the intent of the vision if we take this too literally and assume that it means everyone in heaven will have to eat a piece of fruit every month to stay alive. That doesn't make sense. Our eternal life won't depend upon eating some magical fruit. Our eternal life will, however, flow from the very throne of God. And what better way could there be to picture this than to picture it as a river flowing from God through the land, watering trees that produce fruit for our sustenance? It's an image that's given to us. The point is that God himself will be the source of our life, and we will be dwelling together with him in the city of God. He will be on the throne, and we will be serving him by reigning with him. His name will be on our foreheads, in our thoughts, and we shall be able to see him face to face. The curse of sin and death that separated us from one another will be gone. No darkness will ever again cut us off from his glorious presence. Together we will reign forever and ever. And that is the most glorious aspect of life in the city of God. It's life in perfect fellowship with our Creator and Redeemer. What more could we desire? You know, all the images of walls of jasper and foundations of jewels and gates of pearls and streets of gold and trees of life are there just to give us a glimmer of the glory of being with our Savior forever and ever. It's an amazing picture we're given. 
But I pray that this little exploration of the city of God has, has just given us a new longing for the day when all of us who have partaken of the water of life will actually get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And obviously, if you've not partaken of the water of life, if you've not accepted Christ's offer of eternal life, now is the time to do so. There'd be nothing greater to be thankful of during this season of Thanksgiving than the assurance that you're going to spend eternity in the holy city with the Lord your God and your Savior. That you're going to be partaking of life eternal to the fullest as God intended, freed from all sin and the death and the pain and the stuff that we see in this fallen world. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. And one of the great hymns of celebration is when we all get to heaven. And we want to sing that together in the hopes that all who are here have the confidence that they will be there. And if you don't, I invite you to come and find that assurance by confessing your faith in Christ, drinking from the well of the water of life, and knowing for sure that that day will be a day of rejoicing. Let's stand. Let's stand.